Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Cotton Grower Magazine's Cotton Companion Podcast. It's finally May, and planting is starting to pick up quickly across most of the cotton belt, with a few rain showers start continuing to get in the way of, of really full bore efforts in the southeast and the mid-south. I'm Jim Stedman, Senior Editor of Cotton Grower, and as always, I'm joined by Cotton Grower Editor Frank Giles. Frank, this is always a hopeful time of the year for cotton growers, and you can certainly sense that they're uh, chomping at the bit to really get going. Yeah, those planters are rolling and uh, everybody's getting as much in as quickly as they can. I uh, was chatting with our crop scan consultant, uh, West Briggs in Southwest Georgia early in the week and they had had a big rain the uh, previous weekend and but had planters rolling again, but uh, saw more rain came through there uh, this week. So I think it probably slowed things down again. So I think once they get dried out, they'll be full bore and uh, rolling as quickly as they can. Well, as is our habit, we are uh, we like to focus on cotton economics uh, every few months, and that's what we're going to do in this episode. Uh, we have prices that are still holding in the mid to high 80s. Uh, demand is good, uh, and the market is watching the weather forecast for West Texas very, very closely right now. And joining us in the virtual Cotton Companion studio later in this episode will be Dr. John Robinson, He's Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Cotton Marketing Economist. It's always good to catch up with him and his perspective on the market, and we certainly hope you'll stay tuned for that discussion in this, the 95th episode of the Cotton Companion. But first, let's take a quick look at some recent news from across the cotton belt. As I said, the planters are rolling, uh, and we're getting the USDA crop progress reports in now. Uh, the latest one tells us that about 16% of U.S. cotton has been planted to date. That number is a little bit skewed by the 60 plus percent total of uh, total planting in Arizona and California. So they're off to a blazing fast start. Most Southeast states are double digit uh, percentage planting led by South Carolina, Virginia and Alabama. Mid-South growers are off to a good start in Louisiana and Mississippi but lagging well behind the five-year average in Arkansas, Tennessee, and Missouri due to cold, wet conditions. Texas is 19% planted, mostly in the south and coastal areas of the state, and Oklahoma is just getting started. At this point, and again, it's very early, four states are ahead of their five-year uh, averages for early, uh, early May. On to other news, enrollment is now open for the 40th session of the Texas International Cotton School, scheduled for August 2nd through 12th in Lubbock. Class size for this year's session is limited to 10 students on a first-come, first-served basis of full tuition pay payments. Social distancing guidelines will also be followed. The two-week course covers all aspects of the cotton from field to fabric with input instruction provided by more than 30 cotton industry ex experts from across the U.S. The school is a collaboration between the Lubbock Cotton Exchange and the faculty and staff of the Fiber and Biopolymer Research Institute of Texas Tech University. Information about the school tuition and curriculum is online at texasinternationalcottonschool.com. And finally, an interesting story out of Oklahoma, where third graders at the Frederick Elementary School petitioned the state Senate and House to approve a resolution recognizing cotton 
and the state's cotton producers. According to the Oklahoma Farm Report, the students and their teachers wrote letter, letters to their legislator, legislators after reading the ag and the classroom curriculum on what they call red, red dirt symbols and realizing the cotton growing all around their area and it was not an official state symbol. As a result, their local state senator and state representative backed a special resolution to designate cotton as the official fiber of Oklahoma. The measure passed, making cotton one of the state's official state symbols. Great job to those third graders who recognized the need and made it happen. That's great. Thanks, Frank. And now it's time for our uh, quarterly cotton economics update, uh, especially uh, we think it's important right now with planting getting underway. And joining us now in our virtual studio to discuss the current state of the cotton market is our good friend, Dr. John Robinson. He's Texas A&M AgriLife Extension cotton marketing economist. John, thanks for taking time to join us. Welcome back to the Cotton Companion. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The cotton market has been hanging around this 80 to 90 cent level uh, for a few months now, and we know demand's rising around the world, And uh, but there's a, obviously a whole lot more to it than that. What factors are really driving this market right now as, as our farmers, uh, as our growers start heading out to plant? Well, I think it's a mix, as it usually is, of fundamental factors expectations of supply and demand outcomes mixed with kind of the catalyst of speculative buying and selling. Um, so you're right, we've, um, if we go back about a year's time, there was a steady and remarkable upward march of cotton prices from the lows of April 2020 to the highs of sometime in March of 21, that was like a 40 or 45 cent rally. I've never seen anything like it. And then, and then there was a pretty big reset. Prices uh, slipped and, and that, that, that rally was spurred by both evidence of recovering demand, export demand, as well as a lot of speculative buying. Uh, which tapered off and then switched to selling or profit taking or something. But anyway, it, here in the spring, we had a reset of 15 or 16 cents um, off the front contracts. And then it, and so prices slipped back down in towards the mid seventies and then they turn right around and have marched back up to, uh, in the case of the December contract, we're trading around 85, 86 something. And as of this week, the uh, nearby, July contract is is over 91 so we're we're back and I think that is being fueled by again by speculative buying um, I I think there's there's two separate sort of uh, influences for the old crop I think um, just squaring up the, all the export business sales squaring up all those transactions is going to involve a lot of buying of that, buying back of hedges on that uh, July contract. And, and I think that's what's supporting it and, and pushing it higher and uh, you may go three, four or five cents higher, uh, may make a run towards a dollar. Uh, but it's, it's basically just kind of wrapping up uh, the selling of the 20 crop. Uh, 
the new crop situation, I think, has its own influence and its its supply and demand, and it's a lot of supply, a lot of expectations about uh, having a short crop, being in a weather market, um, the dryness in uh, in West Texas and Oklahoma and Kansas, and and also the surge in uh, grain and oilseed prices. Uh, it just takes my breath away what's going on over in those markets. And I think that's still having an effect. I think at the margin, we're probably losing acres in the Delta. If people finish up planting corn, they probably plant an extra field or two uh, to corn or soybeans um, and similar, similar sort of thing in the Southeast. I think cotton's probably lost ground here at the last minute, lost ground to peanuts or, or soybeans or corn. So um, there's a lot of things going on that are uh, making it a very kind of fluid situation. Just a, just a, a quick follow-up on that. What are the, uh, what sort of alternative crops are, are you seeing or are you hearing about in Texas? I heard sorghum prices are doing pretty well. Corn, corn prices obviously are, are looking pretty good. What, are we seeing a lot of shift over in that or are growers still actually trying to make up their minds? I, I, I would think they would have had to have made up their minds. Um, now let's let's be clear. They they were planting in March in South Texas, so that that decision is is done uh, for a long time. But um, you know, for the sake of seed and herbicide and and preparation, I I think most of the Texas growers were probably probably had decided things in the last you know month or so. Um, you asked about the choices, you know, grain sorghum is ordinarily a poor sister sort of choice, but this year grain sorghum prices are outstanding. And so it's, it's, that's getting a lot of attention. You know, sorghum is going to do better in a dry situation or in a deficit irrigated situation, which is what West Texas is. Uh, sorghum, you know, if you don't have water, you don't you sure don't have enough water for a corn crop and maybe not enough for a good cotton crop you can you can grow a pretty decent sorghum crop um, so so sorghum is getting a lot of attention and we at this point we just hear stories about about wheat which is the other alternative wheat being kept for grain and after they cut the wheat that they're going to come in with a very short season sorghum um, crop we've we've heard that um, you know, it's all anecdotal at this point, and we won't really know until until June. And and honestly, we won't really know about whether sorghum went in the ground unless, unless the, as an intention, they tell USDA, yeah, I've cut some wheat, I'm going to plant some sorghum. Um, we'll have to see what the June planted acres report says. Speaking of the uh, crop progress report, we see that the southeast is uh, currently a little bit ahead of average mid-south is still hampered by the cool and wet weather. And Arizona and California is light, light years ahead of everybody. Um, what's the status for Texas right now in, in cotton planting? We're, we're a few percentage points ahead of, of the five-year average. So, you know, we're, we're kind of normal. Um, you know, again, Texas is such a, such a different varied sample from south to north, it's a different world. So, but this, you know, southern stuff's all been planted and caught some of these rains. So by accounts that I hear, it's in pretty decent shape. You know, one more rain in June and they may have enough to finish the crop in Corpus Christi, which is amazing. Um, 
out in the in the northwest in the plains where it's dry um you know people the the tendency is is to if they don't get a rain up until the planting they'll wait until the planting deadline to see if they can get rain but if they don't they're going to plant it uh, generally it pencils out better to put the seed in the ground and see what happens versus trying to claim prevented planting so so generally i think all that ground's going to get planted uh, it's just very uncertain you know what's going to emerge what the abandonment will be and it could be very high i expect it to be above average now I understand parts of that that Northwest Texas area did get some rain over the over the course of the last week, and and I was visiting or, or listening in on some conversations uh, earlier today, and uh, folks are feeling a little bit more optimistic. At least there's enough moisture to get started. That's that's what I hear too. The other thing about that is it's again it's such a wide sample area that you know some people got rain, some people didn't. It's a spotty situation, and that will remain. You know, from this point forward, some people will get showers under that cloud, some people won't, and it'll be that way from now till August. So it'll be an uncertain picture. That's the way we, these weather markets are. They're the definition of uncertainty. And so we won't know what we have really until USDA sends people out, enumerators out in the field to sample for the, for the September supply and demand report will probably be the best first guess about what's really there. Earlier this week, uh, I believe you participated in a session on preventing cotton contamination, and that's a topic that we've discussed on this podcast before. Uh, and I know you were looking at the situation from the economic impact of, uh, of the contamination. Now, we're sitting here, we're a long way from harvest and ginning right now, but uh, what did you tell the group? Is anything that they need to be keeping in mind right now as they're going? To the field. Yeah, I, I tried to, I was really given a motivational sermon, <laughs> what I was doing, uh, and I was trying to point out to them that there's a, there's a big difference. There's, there's two separate issues. If, if you're a grower and you have a bale that gets classed with plastic contamination, well, then the costs are clear. Your bales, your cotton's going to get discounted 40 cents or something, and the, and the merchant may not take it. They may not want it in a recap. They won't take it in a forward contract. So you're kind of, it's a loss to you, but it's only for that affected bale. The, the sermon I preached to them was, if this becomes a persistent problem and an expectation that certain regions of the country are, are sources of contamination, well, that, that can come back and bite every grower, every bale from that region. That's, that's the history of those kinds of contamination issues. When a region gets a reputation for it, then all the buyers will discount all the bales by the amount that they expect to have to spend to monitor and clean up and fix that, mediate that problem, which past history using sticky cotton as an example, you know, it can run two or three cents. We've seen it market evidence of discounts to regions like Arizona when they were a source of that problem, two or three cents for a couple of years on all the bales from that region. And so I was pointing out to my audience that you really, really don't want that to happen. Um, you know, South Texas has the reputation of being the first, the first new crop in North America. And it's usually, you know, if they have decent enough weather and dodge the hurricanes, it's good quality stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the reputation they want to maintain for that region. And not, not that it's 
the highest source of plastic contamination in the country, which unfortunately it is. As, as growers are heading to the field right now, what do they need to be keeping in mind? Uh, how many, you know, how, how active are they right now in, in, you know, in the futures market and, and getting things squared away? And what advice would you give them right now looking at where prices are? Yeah, it's, this is a difficult kind of year to talk about marketing because there is so much uh, above average production risk, you know, particularly if you're a dryland grower, you know, it's really hard to even hedge something that you may not get any bales from that kind of messes up the hedging formula. It certainly messes up, uh, uh, puts a huge risk if you're, if you're contracting bales, you know, before you've harvested them. So uh, that's, that's a real, a real issue. Now, having, having said that, what I'm telling people is, I think this is an opportunity this year for higher, high prices, profitable prices. And typically the highest ones of those ranges happen between now and, and July. So if, if a grower had a reasonable minimal expected level of production that he could contract in advance or hedge in advance, you know, they might, they might think about, think about doing that. Um, otherwise, um, the, the growers and the majority of Texas growers sell through a marketing co-op like PCCA. And, and that's probably the best production risk option that the grower has because PCCA essentially it's an acre contract and PCCA is assuming that production risk. So in a year like this, um, that's, that, that's a very beneficial uh, tool for, for growers to have to, to avail themselves of that. Well, John, with that, uh, I think we're going to let you get back to your, uh, to your regular daily business of, uh, of watching the cotton market and trying to predict what it's going to do. I'm going to my next Zoom call <laughs> after I answer that phone call. Anyway, as always, thanks, thanks for taking time to join us today. And, and here's hoping that, that Texas will get some helpful rain and, and we, can, we can keep those smiles growing on, on our growers' faces at this point. I'm all for that. Thank you for, for taking the time to chat. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. Once again, that's it for this episode of the Cotton Companion Podcast. As always, thank you, dear listeners, for joining us. If you like what you hear on the Cotton Companion, please be sure to spread the word and tell your farmer friends about this podcast. And here's Miss Diane to tell you how you can find us. You can find the Cotton Companion in three easy ways. First, go to cottongrower.com forward slash companion, or simply click the podcast tab at the top of the homepage. Second, subscribe to our channel on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts these days. And three, sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, The Cotton Grower E-News, that's delivered to your email inbox every Tuesday morning. You can do that by going to cottongrower.com forward slash subscribe. Also, be sure to follow Cotton Grower on social media. We are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter. And on Facebook, you'll find us by searching for Cotton Grower Magazine. The May issue of Cotton Grower Magazine is now in the hands of the U.S. Postal Service, and that should start showing up in your mailboxes within the next week. And as always, be sure to check cottongrower.com for the latest up-to-date cotton news. The Cotton Companion podcast comes to you twice monthly, 
and it's produced by Tyler Hatch and Kim Henderson, our talented colleagues at the World Headquarters for Meister Media Worldwide in lovely Willoughby, Ohio. My name's Jim Stedman, his name's Frank Giles, and we'll be back with you in two weeks with the next episode of The Cotton Companion. Until then, stay safe and get those planters rolling. Yeah, he works and he works and he works and he works all day. God made it for me.